Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 9 of Beyond Fear. During this episode, we're going to do something a little bit different because we have a resident expert on sex crimes policy right here with us, and I'm not just saying that. So you know Alyssa from this podcast, but in case you didn't know, she has actually dedicated her career to studying sex crimes policy and practice, the ideology of sexual offending, the effects of sexual victimization, and more recently, restorative justice options for those impacted by sexual harm. She's also given over 50 national and international talks on her sex crimes work and has written extensively on the topic. Today, I will be interviewing Alyssa about the history of sex crimes legislation, the current impact of these different types of laws, and what the future looks like um, in terms of how we deal with sex crimes in the U.S. So welcome, Alyssa. It's really good to be here. It's kind of weird having you interview me for this, uh, but I'm excited to talk about this today. I'm excited to talk with you, too. And also, so I should say I should fangirl a little bit. So Alyssa is not only a friend or has become a really great friend, my ride or die, of course, but um, she definitely is. I know this might sound silly, but she's a giant in the field of um, sex offenders, sex crimes policy. Um, So I can't even tell you how many times I've cited her over the years. So it's really exciting to talk to her about this because she is indeed an expert on uh, this topic. So Alyssa, I thought that we could start out by giving our listeners a bit of background on what we mean when we say sex crimes policy. Yeah. So I think uh, in order to answer that question, we actually have to go back to the 1950s. Uh, when the first major sex crimes policies were written. Um, and I'm actually not going to go into that history, but what I think is really important is that there was an article, a, a peer-reviewed journal article written in the 1950s um, that basically said, here are all of the things that we know work and here are all of the things that we know don't work. And it is those same things that we're doing now that don't work. So we've known what doesn't work for a long time, almost 70 years, and we're still doing it. So I think it's important Mm -hmm. to start with that. Um, So uh, in 1990, uh, the state of Washington enacted the Community Protection Act after two uh, well-known offenders had committed some particularly heinous offenses, uh, Wesley Allen Dodd and Earl Schreiner. Um, So that was 1990. Around the same time, we see the abduction of Jacob Wetterling in Minnesota. 
1994, because of what happened to Jacob Wetterling, uh, the federal government passed uh, the Jacob Wetterling Act, which required states to create um, registries of people who were known offenders. But these were law enforcement registries. These were not public registries. Right. Um, and the idea behind it was that there was a small number of people who were dangerous repeat offenders and that law enforcement should know who they are and where they are. Right. And so like an investigative tool almost. Right. Right. So that was passed in 1994. In the same year, that seven-year-old Megan Kanka was uh, lured from her home mm -hmm. uh, to the home of Jesse Temendaquas, who was a repeat and violent offender who lived across the street from her. Um, he said that he had a puppy that he wanted her to come see. Mm -hmm. She went across the street and he assaulted her and murdered her. So in the wake of that, Megan's parents said, if we had known that this man was living across the street from us, mm -hmm. we would have taken better precautions. And so the federal Jacob Wetterling Act was amended uh, to create what we now call Megan's Law. And if you could see me, I'm air quoting Megan's mm -hmm. Law. And so taken together, that includes registration policies. So people must register their whereabouts and certain demographic information with law enforcement and community notification, which requires that that information be made publicly available. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I started doing this work uh, in the early 2000s, you could go to the police department and you could get a CD-ROM with mm -hmm. all of the known offenders on the CD, <laughs> or you could go into the police department and they would have a binder and you could look through the binder right. of all of the known uh, people who had committed sex crimes on that list. But by 2003, every state had a public internet registry. Yep. Um, and since that time, those registries have ballooned. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I think is really important to say is that um, states have a lot of leeway right. as to what information they provide, mm -hmm. how much information they provide, which people they put on registries. So some states only put those that are considered high risk on mm -hmm. registries. Other states put everybody who's convicted of any sex offense. Uh, and again, I'm air quoting sex offense mm -hmm. on the public registry. And so it has really varied by state. But now we're in the year 2020. And at last count, there were almost a million people on these sex crimes registries in the United States. And I say at last count because uh, the count was held by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And we have been quite vocal. We, several researchers, have been quite mm -hmm. vocal about some of the problems with their numbers. Uh, and about a year ago, they stopped publishing their numbers. So we actually don't know mm -hmm. how many people. We just know at last count, there were almost a million people on registries. Can you explain why their numbers might be off? Like what, what's some of the issues around um, NCMEC for sure, right? What What's some of the issues around their the way they count um, registrants? That's a really good question. <laughs> so, and that's where a lot of my research uh, on this topic has been. So um, the NCMEC data listed the number of people who 
um, what they say is that the number of RSOs, uh, registered sex offenders, and that's the only time you'll ever hear me say that word, um, in the United States. The problem with that is that, so for instance, the state of Washington, uh, the NCMEC numbers list 20,000 people. Mm-hmm. The Washington state numbers list 5,000 people. And that's because there are 5,000 people on the public registry in the state of Washington. Mm. There's an additional 15,000 people who are not on the public registry because the state of Washington has deemed them low enough risk that they don't belong there. Okay. Whereas the state of Florida Mm -hmm. has 70,000 people on the public registry Mm -hmm. because even if you come visit the state for, and for, you know, a couple of weeks, Mm-hmm. You have to you have register, to register and now you're on that registry and they don't take you off. And so those right. numbers are inflated. Um, so the work that I have done has really tried to figure out exactly who is on the registry for what, where are they? Mm-hmm. And what we have found is that the NCMEC numbers were not um, accurate. They were not accurate, not particularly helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that kind of goes back to this, uh, the idea that we've talked about, you know, in the early episodes of trying to count crime or trying to count victimization rates. Like it's very difficult when you don't have official sources that are consistent to know, you know, the extent of what's going on or who's being affected. It's it's difficult. Right. And one of the things that is so concerning is that, you know, when you see this number, there's a million people who have committed sexual offenses living among us, that's scary. Right. But when you see that aggregate number, it doesn't take into account who these people are, Mm -hmm. um, what they're actually there for. There are a lot of people who have committed very, very minor offenses who are Mm -hmm. not at risk to reoffend at all that are sort of lumped into this this number. Um, Mm -hmm. And it doesn't account for the millions and millions of people who are committing sex crimes around us all the time that we just don't know about. Right. Um, so it sort of puts our attention in a space that is probably not the best place for our attention. And we, mm-hmm. we talked about that in the last episode, right? Right. Um, so it takes, it, it puts it in one place and takes it away from where it really needs to be, which is on prevention. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I didn't mention that I think is really important is the Adam Walsh Act. Mm-hmm. Um, so I said that um, in 2003, all states had a public Internet registry, but could uh, they varied into, as to what information they had on registries. So in 2006, the federal government passed the Adam Walsh Act, which tried to mandate that states um, sort of uh, come into compliance, that they would all keep the same kinds of information. Right. Uh, And one of the things that the Adam Walsh Act did was mandate that states use what they call offense-based classification as opposed to risk-based classification. Mm -hmm. Um, So when we talk about risk, we have assessment tools that we use to determine whether or not somebody is at low risk to reoffend, moderate risk, or high risk. And there's a lot of issues that I have with those assessment tools. That's another conversation. But, right. <laughs> um, but 
So we use these tools to determine risk and we we classify people on registries based on risk. Mm -hmm. What the Adam Walsh Act did was change to offense-based classification. So if you were convicted of a specific offense, regardless of what the risk assessment tool said, Mm -hmm. you were classified based on the offense. And so what that did basically overnight, and we have some uh, pretty cool uh, pie charts to show this. There was some research done by uh, Dr. Joe Levinson and Dr. Andy Harris um, that showed this. And basically the registry went from like 65% low risk and like overnight with the implementation of Adam Walsh shifted to 65% high risk. Right. Right. So even huge, it's huge. Right. Um, And so it just goes to show that there's a lot of issues with uh, these policies themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and they really give us a, a false narrative yeah, about who's on registries, what they're on there for, and whether or not these laws even do anything to make us safer. Right. So we'll talk more about that um, for sure. But uh, I also wanted to emphasize too, when you said, uh, you said that some people are on the registry for relatively minor offenses. Could you give an example of what you mean here? Because we're not, I mean, we're talking really minor here, maybe not even in the realm of what we would think when we say sex offense. Yeah. So there are people who are on the registry for um, public urination, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's a small number of people, but They're that there. does happen. There are people on the registry who were both 14 years old and had a sexual encounter. Um, and now both of them are on the registry for sexual assault of a minor. Uh, and there's lots of cases like that, actually. Um, there are people on registries for having sex in a public place. So essentially where no one is, is harmed um, and yet they're still on the registry. And perhaps if they're in a state where, um, correct me if I'm wrong, there's some states where you're on the registry basically forever. Yes, that's true. Um, And so some of these people could be registrants for, if not their whole life, but a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, I think it's important for our listeners to hear this too, that there are some children on the registry. Yes. Is that right? So we have very young people very young kids who were playing doctor um Mm -hmm. kids who were expressing curiosity uh kids who are on the registry for things that many of us have done as teenagers Mm -hmm. because we didn't realize that they were against the law Mm -hmm. right yeah um kids who had consensual sex but because they were under the age of consent there's a case that i wrote about many years ago about a high school student named Janarla Wilson, who was, um, he was 17 and he was at a party um, with some people from the track and field team at his high school. Mm-hmm. And there was a girl on the team who was 15 at the time. Um, and at the party, she uh, performed oral sex on him. It was caught on video. Um, 
And because she was under the age of consent and he was over the age of consent, he ended up going to prison. And these are kids that go to high school together, right? right. So the laws, you know, kids who engage in sexting, right? They take a nude picture of themselves and they send it to somebody else. Now they've That's just huge. distributed child pornography mm-hmm. and the person who has it uh, is in possession of child pornography, Right. Which, which carries huge penalties right. under the law. CP right. legislation has huge sentencing disparities when you look at that yeah. so compared all, to other. So all of these people are caught up in this web of legislation that was never intended for them. Right. Um, and that makes it really hard to delineate actual risk. Right. And so maybe we can talk about that a little bit. So what were some of the, you you know, you spoke about cases like Jacob Wetterling and Megan Kanka, and they are and Adam Walsh. And those were horrific. I remember Adam Walsh, you know, the whole Adam Walsh situation. And of course, it's horrific. And, you know, a lot of the parents of these children became involved in advocating for these policies. And you know, one can't blame them for that. You know, their child has been killed and in a shocking and brutal and awful way. But what were some of the basic assumptions um, that these policies were sort of built on? And how does that differ from the reality of, of sexual violence? Yeah. So the assumption underpinning all of these policies is that people who commit sex crimes are somehow different than the rest of us that they will never stop, that they will escalate, right? Um, and that somehow by keeping track of them and knowing where they are, we can stop sexual violence, right? Okay, so let's backtrack a little bit. All of the, these children, let's be very clear about this, all of these children, as awful and heinous as these cases were, these were young white children, mm-hmm. right? Um, the same kind of attention is not paid to marginalized children. Absolutely. Um, it is true that there is a small number of very dangerous repeat offenders who probably will not stop. But that number is very, very small. And knowing where somebody's address is does not stop the vast majority of sexual abuse that happens because nine times out of 10, the person knows the person who harmed them. It is very, very rare for it to be a stranger. It is usually a family member, a friend, Somebody that you're dating, a coach, a clergy member. It's somebody that you know, somebody that you trust, not somebody who's on the registry. Right. Right. I can't think of a single case in all of the survivors that I have worked with that having looked at the registry would have stopped the offense from happening. Right. I mean, even in my situation where it was a stranger, he wasn't registered, you know, so I wouldn't have. Of known, and I know how rare my situation is, you know. And so I, I think what the other issue too is that it really diverts people's attention, 
And instead of paying attention to what could be going on in their own home or their own family, they look at this external threat and can become, you know, sort of, I don't want to say ignorant to, but just like not paying close attention to what could be happening right under their nose. Instead, you know, they're more focused on the that stranger danger situation again. It gives a false sense of security for sure. Absolutely. Uh, so I think something that's really important about your work um, and others that have done this research is what the research tells us about the actual effectiveness of these policies. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, basically every single study on registration and notification that has been conducted to date um, shows that these laws are not effective at reducing rates of sexual harm. In fact, there was a meta-analysis that came out. Um, so a meta-analysis is a study of studies, mm -hmm. if you will. Um, there's a meta-analysis that came out in a couple of years ago, I want to say 2018, that looked at um, a series of studies on the effectiveness of legislation and found, like, I think I highlighted the sentence at the end of the paper that said, like, um, I'm paraphrasing, um, taken as a whole, registration and notification policies have not been shown to be effective. There was one study that found that um, registration for people uh, who had committed sexual offenses was a specific deterrent for them. Mm -hmm. But overall, it is very, very clear that these laws do nothing to prevent uh, rates of sexual harm. Mm -hmm. And so most of those studies were looking at um, how the rates of sexual violence being reported prior to the enactment of this legislation and then after. Yeah. So the study that I did, I was, it was with uh, Professor David Greenberg and uh, Dr. Megan Sachs. Um, we looked at uh, the Uniform Crime Report, which we talked about in episode one. We looked at rates of forcible rape over a 30-year period and the implementation of Megan's law. Um, and what we found was that there was no difference, nothing, zero effect between before mm -hmm. Megan's law and after Megan's law was put into place on rates of forcible rape. And there are other ways that mm -hmm. other researchers have looked at it, but whether we're looking at small scale studies, large scale studies, you know, once one snapshot in time, longitudinal research over time, these laws do not prevent sexual violence. And so in turn, that kind of means that some of the assumptions that these policies are based on are just not accurate. So the idea that all of these people on the registry or some of these people on the registry or most of these people on the registry are going to continue to offend and they're going to you know, offend and continue to offend in a way that's more and more violent and dangerous each time. Um, so if that were true, you know, we would see different results in a lot of these studies and we don't see that. So, you know, that's, I think, a strong reason to consider that this is perhaps a waste of 
resources in a lot of ways. I think um, Dr. Harris talked about that a little bit as well, is that we should be using our resources for something that actually would prevent sexual violence from occurring. Yeah, and it's certainly not this. One of the things that I'll I'll reiterate that uh, Dr. Danielle Harris said in our last episode was around recidivism. So if you look Mm -hmm. at a lot of the um, legislative policy conversations around this, you will see legislators writing about these increasingly high recidivism rates. That quote comes from a magazine article, not even a peer-reviewed study, that came from a magazine article talking about a specific type of offender in the 1980s. But every major study on recidivism to date has found that people who commit sex crimes have low sexual recidivism rates. Right. And I think also, and we'll talk about this more when we talk about treatment, but also if um, treatment is completed, their recidivism rates tend to also be lower, even lower. Is that correct? That's correct. So that's, I think, a key piece to consider here as well. Um, I feel like another really important part of all of this is something that we sort of alluded to when we spoke to Dr. Harris, but um, it has to do with the actual, what we call in the, in the realm of sexual offense research is the collateral consequences of these pieces of legislation. So could you sort of unpack that for us, for our listeners a bit? Yeah. um, I want to talk specifically about registration and notification Mm -hmm. because there's an additional set of consequences that come with residence restrictions, which we'll talk about Um, But when we're talking about registration and notification, um, this can have major consequences, not just on the person who has caused harm, but on their family members and their friends. Um, So let's talk about the personal ones first, and then we can talk about some of the broader ones. But um, the level of stress that this puts on people... um, Maybe that's not an unintended consequence, but it is certainly a consequence. The shame that comes from having their face plastered on a registry, like even after death, that stays right in perpetuity. They are on the Internet with their face listed as a registrant. Um, The cost of registration and treatment is exorbitant. The loss of employment You know, once you say that you are a registrant, the chances of you getting a a good job, slim to none. The property value um, for your home and for the homes around you decrease because nobody wants to buy a home next to a registrant. So property values for the entire community decrease. Family members are often ostracized from their peer groups. It can be as simple as like, a kid needs to be picked up from school and their parent can't pick them up because they're a registrant. Right. So the, the long-term impacts on, on kids because they have a parent who's a registrant are um, significant. Yeah. Right. How do you explain to a young child that their parent can't come to, you know, their softball game or their soccer game? Or their field trip, school play, like any of those any things. Any of that. 
right? Mm -hmm. Those consequences are real. And what we know from the criminological literature is that we already know that this is a population of people who have very low recidivism rates. And when you add what we know from the general criminological literature, that for somebody to reintegrate successfully into society, they need a stable job, they need stable housing, and they need stable pro-social relationships. And the collateral consequences that we see from these policies stops all of those things from happening. Right. So it makes it incredibly difficult for people to reintegrate successfully. Now, as I asked in the last episode, as we talked about, I completely understand why people would say, well, I don't care. Right. Right. About these individuals. Right. But if we care about ending sexual violence and we care about the common humanity, really, then we're going about this the wrong way. Yeah. Um, I get the anger. I get the lack of care. And I get that, you know, the two of us and others who take this stance will get a lot of flack for saying this. But sure. um, if we want to end sexual violence, saying that we don't care about the people who perpetrate it, saying that we hope that they rot, saying, you know, all of the things that people say, it's not going to get us there. It's going to make the problem worse. Right. And then the the other response might be, we'll just lock them up forever. Um, I think we're right now maybe starting to learn that arresting our way through life as a country, like just lock all these people up. Like we have a huge issue with an exploding prison population. So mm -hmm. the majority of offenders are returning to the community. And so to not care about their experiences is really dangerous to commun the community in general. Like if you want to prevent offending or if you want to prevent any type of crime, you have to consider um, the well-being and lives of those returning to your community, regardless of, of their offense. Mm -hmm. It's a very short-sighted thing that we're doing. Absolutely. Um, by saying that we don't care. Yeah, and another piece of this, Lex, um, mm -hmm. You know, we talked about how the vast majority of people who are victimized, they know the person who has harmed them or is continuing to harm them. And they don't necessarily want a long prison sentence or registration notification. They just want it to stop. Right. But they are afraid to say anything because if they go to law enforcement, the person that they love may go away for a very long time. I mean, given what we know, the chances are slim to none that that's going to happen. Um, right. But it could. And that's devastating for a family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the idea of a family member being on the registry, I think, also impedes people because it does tear a family apart in a lot of really significant ways, the ways that you just talked about. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that is a deterrent from reporting offenses in a lot of mm -hmm. ways. Absolutely. And it goes back to what we talked about, how there is no us versus them. It's this, you know, two sides of the same coin, right? Mm -hmm. Because like this is an intimate crime that happens typically between people who know and love each other. If we create more and more harsh policies, fewer and fewer people are going to report. Right. And we don't there. Well, we'll talk about this in the upcoming episodes, but we don't give people a lot of alternatives to go through 
to going through the formal criminal justice process. And so we'll talk about what some of those alternatives are um, in our upcoming episodes. But um, people often feel like there's no way for them to get any sort of resolution. Um, and that causes a whole other bunch of issues psychologically for um, the survivor and for the perpetrator. So I think it's um, I think it's a good time to ask you, well, how do we get ourselves out of this sort of mess that we're in? Um, or do you see any utility to having a registry at all? Yeah. So before I answer that question, I want to talk a little bit about residence restrictions, and then I will okay. answer it talking about all of mm -hmm. these policies. So one of the other policies that has come out of registration and notification policies are what we call residence restrictions. And these are laws that or ordinances that mandate how close or how far somebody must live from a place where children congregate. So it might be a school, a park, a daycare, school bus stops. And what has happened because of these restrictions is that, number one, people don't have anywhere to, to live, yeah. right? There was this documentary from 2016, 2017 called Untouchable, and it followed... Which I highly recommend. Absolutely. We'll link it in our blog. It followed people who were on the registry. And there's two stories that I want to point out with that. The first was a, a woman, her name was Shauna, who, when she was a teenager, um, had sex with another teenager who was underage. And ended up having to register as a level three high risk sex offender. And the, the documentary starts years and years and years and years later. She's a mom of two young kids. And the documentary starts the day before an ordinance goes into effect that says that registrants can't be in public parks. So here was somebody who had what appeared to be um, consensual sex, um, with another teenager who happened to be under the age of consent. And now all of these years later, because she's a registrant, can't take her two young kids to the park. I don't think that's who we're thinking about when we think right. about laws like this one. Right. The rest of the film follows um, a homeless encampment in uh, Miami, Florida, where there's all of these mostly men who can't find anywhere else to live. Like it's the only place in Miami-Dade County that people would be in compliance with residence restrictions. Relegating mm -hmm. people into homelessness is not helping us out of this problem. No, <laughs> clearly not. No, you know, especially because again, we know the people who harm us. Right. So if you're trying to protect kids from being harmed, uh, it is not the monster showing up at the schoolyard luring on kids that's going to harm your kid. Right. Right. It's somebody that you know. Mm -hmm. There was a case that a colleague told me about where this man had lived in his home across the street from a high school for like 25 years and then met a young teenager on the Internet. I believe it turned out to be a, a police officer um, pretending to be a child um, and drove three states away to go meet this kid, mm -hmm. uh, ended up, uh, you know, being convicted, ended up serving time. 
And when this person got out and went to move back into the house that he lived in for 25 years across the street from a high school, couldn't live there because it was in violation of a residence restriction. But he drove three states away to commit his offense, right? So these kinds, like they are well-intentioned policies, but they end up making the problem worse, both for individuals, but also um, for law enforcement officials overall. Like if you have residence restrictions in place that make it so people can't live anywhere in your town or in your county, they have to go somewhere, Mm -hmm. right? And Mm -hmm. you just might not be able to find them. Right. And they're not allowed in homeless shelters. Right. And they're not allowed in, let's say, if they have like a substance abuse issue, they're not, many are not allowed to stay in those places. And also with the increasing cost of living, a lot of times you can't find a place that's within those parameters that's affordable. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that relegation to homelessness is that's, you know, it's contributed to by that aspect of uh, living as well. Also, that it's difficult to find a job so you don't have income. Also, that you're paying for treatment and you're paying registry fees. And so it's just really sort of a, it is a very complex web of of consequences um, that we've created through mm-hmm. these policies. I'd also add, especially right now, we've just seen this major hurricane. Yeah. That, you know, when there are uh, emergency shelters, people yeah. who are on the registry, people who have sex events convictions can't go to them, right? right? When it's 110 degrees outside and they have cooling centers, people who have committed sexual offenses can't go to them. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we think through these things. And you might be thinking, I don't give a shit, but do you give a shit about the guy that peed outside and no one saw him do it, maybe except for a police officer? Do you think that that guy should be, you know, this isn't a one type of person group. This is a diverse group of individuals that have um, offended or committed acts of sexual harm that are very different from each other. So we can't just say we don't give a shit about any of them, let them die in the hurricane or whatever it is. It's just not human. I don't think it's it's kind and I don't think it's smart either. Right. And I would say whether they peed in public or whether they committed a much more serious harm, we should still give a shit. Mm -hmm. They're another human being. Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe they didn't think about the humanity of the person that they harmed. But people are capable of change. Yeah. And I've never really understood why we offer that grace to people who commit other kinds of offenses right but not to this one mm-hmm. and i think it's because of the false information that's out there about why people offend and the fact mm-hmm. that you know most people think once a sex offender always a sex offender they're always going to reoffend, and that's just not true mm-hmm. and i think that's why people support these policies because they just don't understand they don't they've never been taught the truth about Right. Why these offenses happen. So you ask me about sort of moving forward. Yeah. um, What would I want to see? Mm -hmm. Um, Number one, we have to do away with these policies. I will be the first one that you will see on social media saying abolish 
the registry. Abolish residence restrictions. If we want to end sexual violence, the first thing that we have to do is do that because it gives us a false sense of security that we're actually doing something about a problem that we're actually not doing anything about. We have, as Dr. Harris said in the last episode, we have widened the net of people that fall under the auspices of these policies. Um, We are holding them for longer, but we are not actually doing anything to address the problem that is happening all around us. So uh, Danielle, Dr. Harris, talks about this great visual that she gives. Um, She talks about like the... um, the tuna net analogy. Mm -hmm. I actually don't know anything about fishing for tuna. I'm vegan. (laughs) Um, But so like, if you have these nets that you're um, catching tuna with, you're going to catch other things, right? So the smaller tuna or the smaller fish are going to get out of the net and you'll Mm -hmm. catch some tuna, but you're also going to catch dolphins and sharks and you're going to catch all sorts of things that are not tuna. Right. Right. It's the same thing with the registry and with registration, notification, residence restrictions. We are catching people and holding them and they're not even the thing that we're trying to catch. Right. So we have to do away with these policies. They are ineffective. They might make us feel good, but they do not make us any safer. Yeah. And we have to put our resources toward prevention. And prevention looks like a lot of different things. And we will talk about prevention for an entire episode later on. But one of the things that I will say in this episode is that the first thing that we need to do is to create opportunities for people who think that they might cause harm to get help before they do. Absolutely. And that's, I think, such a huge piece that doesn't get talked about a whole lot um, in general conversations, Um, I think, amongst research researchers it does more but you know we need to delete some of the stigma and allow people because there are people out there that are struggling with these issues but are are legitimately terrified to disclose this to anybody Um, and that we have to we have to be willing to extend a hand to those folks and give them help and not just say oh you're thinking about it, so we're going to put you on a list and keep an eye on you, or you're bound to offend. And, you know, we have to sort of reframe the way we think about that. I would also add, um, there may be people who commit acts of sexual harm that really do not realize that what they're doing is harmful. And maybe they should, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean that they do. And it's one of the reasons, and I'm sure Lakshmi would say the same thing, one of the reasons I'm so public. It's one of the reasons Mm -hmm. I talk about this as much as I do, because it might help somebody recognize that maybe what they're doing actually does cause harm. And that might be hard for maybe some of you out there to believe um, that someone wouldn't think that maybe sexually abusing a child or whatever can be harmful, but it's true. I've seen this and I've had conversations like this with people and it's fact. It It is the reality for some folks. I was working with a guy once, um, who had sexually abused a family member Mm. and listening to him talk, 
Like he really believed that this child could consent. Mm-hmm. If you want to make change, the way you do that is helping him to understand why a child can't and why it's harmful. Right. As opposed to you're just a monster, you're sick in the head, right? Like that's not helpful to anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and these policies make it so that people can never get beyond the label. None of us want to be defined by the worst thing that ever happened to us or the worst thing we've ever done. Mm-hmm. We are capable of change. Absolutely. And people who are on the registry are capable of that change too. If we give them the time and the space to do that. Yeah. And I know we're going to get flack for it and that's mm-hmm. okay. But I hope that people will at least try to hear what we're saying, right? They've trusted yeah. us through eight episodes now. Um, my hope is that they'll continue that trust, especially knowing who we are and how we have come to this belief. Right. And we'll connect you to some of the articles um, that we mentioned in the episode and also to some other content as well. So it's not like, you know, we just have this opinion and it comes from wherever the sky. Um, This is actually an opinion based on research, sound research, decades actually of this research that has come up with the same consistent findings over and over. So we'll definitely share that with you. So thank you so much, Alyssa, for joining us today. This was fun. Thank you. It was fun. So thank you for joining us for Beyond Fear. We would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast and also to answer any questions you might have. So please email us. You can contact us at beyondfearpodcast at gmail.com. And remember, you can find our episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and all other podcasting platforms. Head to our website at www.beyondfearpodcast.com for our blog posts, those resources we mentioned in this episode, extra readings, and episode transcripts. Follow us on Twitter at Fear Crimes, Instagram at Beyond Fear Podcast, and like and follow our Facebook group called Beyond Fear the Sex Crimes Podcast.